Good morning. We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Good morning. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, one of the pastors here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. And we welcome you to Bible class this morning, both those who are here in our gymnasium, those joining us uh, on KFUO, 850 AM, and those worldwide joining us on KFUO.org. A little icy in St. Louis this morning, but not nearly as bad as it was last Sunday. We and many other churches here in the St. Louis area uh, ended up reluctantly having to cancel all of our morning services last Sunday. And uh, not perfect conditions this morning, but certainly not as bad as it was last Sunday. We're thankful for that. We offered, I don't know if any other churches in the area did, we offered a Monday night service last Monday, this past Monday and uh, had a good turnout for that, so we're very thankful for that. We're gonna continue our normal practice here in this class, and that is looking at the lessons, not for today, but the scripture lessons that are assigned for next Sunday, so February 24. And for those of you here in the gym at St. Paul's, there is a sheet over on the side, as usual, that has the lessons printed out on it. And so we invite you to pick up one of those and follow along if you would like. So let's begin, though, with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you that your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, has come that we might have life, abundant life, eternal life through him. And we thank you that through him our sins are forgiven and we have everlasting life. We pray your Holy Spirit's presence and blessing upon our study here this morning as we look into your word. May we, through the Holy Spirit's guiding, continue to grow in our knowledge of your word, but also in our understanding of your will for us as your children here. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as I said, we're going to look at the lessons for next Sunday, February 14. And there is an intended connection, I think, between the Old Testament lesson and the Gospel lesson. And I'm going to suggest that it's perhaps um, not the best connection and perhaps is ignoring some things, uh, especially in the Old Testament lesson. Here's the, I think, the intended connection. The Old Testament lesson from Genesis chapter 45 is the account of Joseph uh, meeting his brothers and forgiving his brothers. This is, and we'll, we'll rehearse the history, the background behind this, because it's kind of hard just to jump right into this. Uh, without again reviewing the background. But anyway, that's the Old Testament lesson, the account of Joseph forgiving his brothers. And then in the Gospel lesson, we've got the so-called Sermon on the Plain from Jesus. And there's talk there also about uh, forgiving our, uh, even praying for our enemies and forgiving those who sin against us. So the connection I think that is intended between the two lessons is just as Joseph forgave his brother, see also Jesus tells us to forgive and even to pray for our enemies and those who persecute us and so on. I think that's the intended connection. And I don't, I don't deny that there's a connection there. But there's even more than that in the Old Testament lesson, which we'll try to bring out in that here we see God in the Old Testament lesson uh, providing the, the continuation of the line that is going to bring about the Savior, the covenant that he made with Abraham. He is continuing now through what he does through Joseph and his brothers. And there's that whole overarching narrative of God's salvation history that is also there in the book uh, or, or in our Old Testament lesson. And I think that uh, unfortunately that's maybe uh, a, 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 a part to the curb, you might say. If we're just going to say, well, the connection is, see, Joseph forgave his brothers, Jesus says, forgive your enemies, pray for your enemies, and there it is. Well, there's a little more to it than that, okay? Now, let's start then. We're going to start with the Old Testament lesson today and Genesis 45. And let me, as I said, it's kind of hard just to jump midstream into this without knowing a little bit of the background. And I know uh, many of you know this background, but let me just rehearse it briefly for us before we actually dive into the lesson. We'll go back to Jacob first, Joseph's father, and he had, remember, 12 sons, okay? 
And remember the line goes Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, okay? So Jacob's grandfather is Abraham, the one whom God came and made the covenant agreement back in Genesis 12 and continued on. So we're now down to Joseph. He has 12 sons. And it's, it even says bluntly uh, in Genesis that, that Jacob loved Joseph more than his other sons. And uh, we, I, I don't know about you, I kind of uh, shriek when I read that, but nonetheless, it's a description of uh, what happened. He was, uh, Joseph was one of his sons in his old age, and uh, along with Benjamin. And it seems that Joseph, you know, his parents, you're not supposed to do that, right? You're not supposed to show favoritism, but it says very bluntly. And remember, as a result of that favoritism, remember what Jacob uh, gave to Joseph, that, that uh, coat of many colors, this beautiful uh, ornamental coat. Okay, so how do you think the other 11 uh, brothers are think, uh, doing at this point? What are they thinking about Joseph? <laughs> you know? Uh, not not good things. So that's that's a part of it. And then uh, remember that Joseph has two dreams, which also did not ingratiate him to his brothers. Remember, the first dream is that they were out in the field and they were burning in the harvest. They were burning in the sheaves, you might say. And remember, Joseph's sheave stood upright, and the other eleven sheaves bowed down to that one sheave that is Joseph's. Well, what does that kind of signify, right? That the other 11 brothers are going to end up bowing down to him in the future. And of course, Joseph tells his brothers this dream, right? So he's, he's wearing this coat. He's talking to his brothers about the dream. Then there's a second dream, and there's the sun, the moon, and 11 stars that all, again, bow down to worship uh, this, this other uh, star, okay? The sun, the moon, the 11 stars bow down to him. Well, not only would the 11 stars would be the 11 brothers, but the sun and the moon would be his parents, right? And uh, so, uh, what? long story short, remember that uh, Joseph, his father tells Joseph to go and check on his brothers. They're all in the field. And remember, they see Joseph coming. And the other 11 uh, kind of sarcastically say, oh, there's the dreamer coming, right? And uh, then they actually originally want to kill him. They want to absolutely destroy him. That's how, how bitter they were against him. And then I think it's Reuben that convinces them uh, let's not kill him, let's just throw him in the cistern. Now, a cistern was just a water uh, holding hole, I guess you would say. This one happened to be dry, so he didn't drown. And then, uh, remember, there's, he, so he's in this cistern, and there's a traveling caravan that comes through. And the brothers then, instead of killing him, they sell him to this traveling caravan of Ishmaelites, who then end up taking Joseph all the way to Egypt. And remember then the brothers kill a goat, and they take the blood from that goat, and they uh, apply it to that, that uh, beautifully uh, colored robe. They probably took some delight in that as well. Go back to father, uh, go back to, to Jacob, and as if to insinuate that he must have been killed. Look at the blood on this robe. And after that, then Jacob has concluded that his son Joseph must be dead. Okay? So we leave things here, and the brothers are probably thinking things are going to be much better now. We got rid of Joseph. And Jacob is probably mourning uh, the loss of his, not only his son, but his favored son, right? The one that he really, really uh, loved. And so we sort of leave things here at this point. Then Joseph now ends up in Egypt, and the Pharaoh there has a dream. And this dream, actually two different parts to a dream, I guess you would say. First of all, the Pharaoh sees seven, uh, we might say fat or uh, very healthy cows, and seven very 
thin and scraggly cows. Okay? Then the second dream is he sees the Pharaoh sees seven healthy heads of grain and seven very dry and parched or withered heads of grain. And nobody can interpret this dream, but Joseph asked God to help him interpret this dream. And the interpretation is that there will be seven years of plenty and abundance to be followed by seven years of famine in the land. Okay? Pharaoh is so impressed that Joseph can interpret this dream, and of course it was God giving Joseph the interpretation, that he sets Joseph up as, you might say, the, the head authority in the entire land of Egypt. It's sort of his, his man. It's not that Pharaoh abdicated his, his throne or anything of that nature, but he, sets, he sees Joseph as being very wise and sets him up as the authority over Egypt. Okay? And so what's going to happen now under Joseph's direction in Egypt is that during the years of abundance, those seven years of abundance, they are going to store up for themselves all kinds of grain and, and food, which you would be the logical thing to do, so that they can endure the seven years of famine. And Joseph is going to be doing this, not just for ostensibly the people in Egypt, but as we're going to see, for Jacob and also his brothers as well. So we pick up the story right at this point now. Joseph is in Egypt. He is sort of the I guess you'd say the master, uh, he's even called a lord in here, and not lord in terms of God, but an overseer, you might say, uh, for things in Egypt. And now it's sort of the drama when the brothers are going to come. And what has happened is they have come once, and they didn't recognize him. They didn't recognize who he was. We don't know how, how much time exactly elapsed here, but they came once, and they didn't bring Benjamin along, the young one. And Benjamin stayed back with Jacob. And so they came, they got some grain from him, from Joseph, not even knowing who he was. And Joseph kept uh, Simeon back and said, if you want to see Simeon again, you better return and bring Benjamin with you. They come back again for some additional grain. Benjamin is with them this time. Uh, make a long story short, they're about to leave. And uh, Joseph uh, manipulates to have a, a cup, a metal cup, put into Benjamin's uh, sack as they're going away, and then tells him to go and see if it was stolen. Sure enough, it's in Benjamin's uh, sack. They all come back, the brothers all come back, and they're standing in front of Joseph here at this point. The whole crew is right there, okay? So that's, that's the setup. Now, I'm going to read, we start at verse 3. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 of Genesis 45. Then Joseph, well, all his brothers ahead, he's standing right there. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it, okay? So now we're gonna pick up Joseph, it's just Joseph and his brothers there, and he is weeping so loud that even he, you can hear him in the other rooms, in the other areas there at the palace. Now we pick up, that's a long introduction to our Old Testament lesson. Starting in verse three. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Well, not only are his brothers dismayed, you might say shocked, but what might they be expecting from him? Yeah, revenge, right? I mean, here they are standing before the guy whom they know is, he's not the Pharaoh, but he is the power broker in all of Egypt. And they can't believe that they're standing right there in front of him, probably wondering uh, what is going to happen to us. Verse 4, So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. <laughs> so 
he's reminding them of what happened here. And again, they're probably quaking in their boots by now. Um, verse 5, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Notice how Joseph reaches out in what we might call grace, right? Undeserved love toward his own brothers. His concern is to comfort and console his brothers. But there's even more behind it than that. Um, so he says, do not, uh, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Notice here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Huh. So this thing looked like a terrible, despicable thing that his brothers did as a result of not being able to tolerate Joseph. But Joseph is seeing a bigger picture here and is saying that in the midst of this evil, despicable thing, who actually was at work? God was at work, right? Notice there, to preserve life. Not only life in Egypt, as we're going to see, but the life of Jacob and his family, and even more so if we think of that line from Jacob being the line that God is going to use to bring about the Savior, who will not only keep, you know, bring physical life, but eternal life. And so Jacob, Joseph is seeing here God's hand at work, okay? Now, can you remember a Bible passage, and it's in the New Testament, it's in a book that starts with an R, that really uh, says the same thing, that in the midst of even bad things in life, God is at work to bring about good. Romans 8.28, right? In the midst of all things, God works for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And notice there, Paul is not saying that all things are good. He's saying in the midst of all things, God is at work for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So again, on the surface and, and some chapters back, this looked like a terrible, despicable thing. But in the midst of this, God is working out his purpose. What's the ultimate example of something like this? Jesus. Unjustly tried, unjustly convicted, unjustly crucified. But in the midst of that, God is at work, isn't he? to bring about the forgiveness of sin and everlasting life. That is, that is certainly the supreme example of this same thing. And so I think as Christians, that helps us. You know, you look at the world around us today, and there are, uh, I think, ample reasons to be concerned. And, uh, you know, as we see not only in our country, but if we broaden it out around the world and certain things happening, uh, that causes a great deal of concern, but to remember that in the midst of all of these things, God is still God, and he is still at work to bring about his purposes, and that brings us a great deal of comfort and peace. You notice that, that uh, uh, verse in the Old Testament, be still and know that I am God, and sometimes we just have to do that. And we see here a prime example of that. Okay, verse 6. For the famine has been in, these, in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. So we get a hint here at how bad it was. They didn't even bother to go out and plant. Things were so bad, they didn't even plow, they didn't even, obviously didn't harvest. So they got five years left. Remember, there was seven, seven bad years coming. And verse 7, and God sent me before you, why? To preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So again, that's the purpose of this, that Joseph is able to preserve life, but also that remnant that God is going to work through. Okay? Uh, verse 8, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. It was according to his plan all along that this happened. 
He has made me a father to Pharaoh. That word for father is used in the Old Testament. It means an intimate advisor or a very close advisor. Um, I know we compare that to today. Maybe uh, for for the president, maybe the chief of staff or something like that. You know, the very high trusted advisor uh, to him. And Lord of all his house. So the, again, the chief advisor and ruler over all the land of Egypt. That gives you an idea, again, of the great power and authority that he had. So verse 9 now, what are we going to do? Now they all know this. Verse 9, hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen which is a northern portion of Egypt. Uh, I was reading that uh, it was an area that was known for its uh, cattle in particular, so a very uh, fertile uh, area, although, of course, at this time, uh, they would have been having the famine as well. They would have stored up, hopefully, uh, great provisions there. Uh, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. And there we end the lesson. It's quite a dramatic scene, isn't it, when they come back together. And from a human standpoint, again, those brothers had every right to expect that now it was going to be their turn to be on the receiving end of some pretty bad things, right? That it, it would only, uh, in terms of worldly justice, it would only be right if now they, for this despicable thing that they did, were on the receiving end. But notice here again the grace, number one, that Joseph operates with. Notice Joseph is able to see God's bigger purpose in all of this. And you might say that Joseph, by providing life for his family during this five remaining years of famine, points ahead to the Savior who is going to come who's going to provide not only temporary life, but eternal life, and is not going to strike out against those who would uh, jeer him on the cross or in any way persecute him. Uh, and so there's a lot going on here in this lesson, and that's why I was saying at the beginning, I think it kind of shortchanges it to say, well, Joseph forgave his brothers, Christ says forgive our brothers, so that's what we do. It almost moralizes the story. And there's a lot more going on here. You can see God at work, just as you can see him at work throughout the Old Testament, to preserve that promise, well, the promise he first made in the Garden of Eden, that he's going to send one who would crush the head of Satan, but then later in Genesis 12 that he makes to Abraham, right? That uh, your people will, I'll give you a land, your people will be more numerous than the stars in the sky or the, the, the sand on the seashore, and through your descendants, all nations of the earth shall be blessed. And that's a promise of the Savior to come through that line. Okay? All right. Let's stop here. Any comments, questions on that Old Testament lesson from Genesis 45? Yes, Don? Yeah, the, uh, the question is, why, why is Benjamin mentioned so often? Benjamin was the, the actually youngest son, and uh, he's... He's the one that, uh, I guess you'd say, Joseph probably feels the most kinship with because of their, their age. It's kind of like, you know, I don't know, and maybe some of you have families where the, the span between siblings was, was quite far apart. And you just naturally feel closer to the ones that you 
spend more time growing up with in the household, right? You have more in common with them, and we, we can see that probably operating uh, here as well. Benjamin, as the, the youngest kid, was always sort of uh, favored uh, along. It seems like, and it's mentioned so many times, but Joseph, it seems, had a special kinship with him, and probably because of that, that age factor as well. Okay, any other comments on this or questions on this? Yes, close. Yes, yeah, the comment was, God sure works in mysterious ways, doesn't he? Yeah, and uh, you know, you, you could even expand this to God raising up the Assyrians to uh, bring judgment on his people in the north, the Babylonians bring judgment on his people in the south, and even after that, God preserves a remnant. And, uh, you know, remember Elijah after he defeats the prophets of Baal? And uh, he's being pursued, and uh, Jezebel is, is after him, and he's, he's in a cave out in the midst of the desert and says, Lord, take my life. I'm the only one. You know, woe is me. God says, uh-uh. There's 7,000 who haven't bowed uh, to the Baal. And uh, get up, anoint Jehu king, and, you know, just get on with things. Don't sit here and feel sorry for yourself. And God is always, we see this throughout the Old Testament, it's a theme that's recurrent, and that is God, despite how bad things get at times, God always preserves a faithful remnant. It might be small in number, but it's a faithful remnant. And he works through that faithful remnant to bring about again what he has promised, namely a Savior in Christ the Lord. But, yeah, it's... Sometimes you read it and you think, oh boy, how is God going to pull, pull this out of the hat, right? Uh, it just doesn't seem possible. But he does work in mysterious ways. Anything else? All right. Let's, I'll tell you what, I'd really like to get to the epistle lesson, and then we'll get to the gospel lesson, even though, again, the Old Testament and the gospel are connected. But the epistle lesson we picked up today, for those of you that have been in worship today, and uh, here at St. Paul's, our vicar, Vicar Tanner Wade, preached on the epistle lesson from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And it's just an, a strange thing, we think, today, when we look back on it, what was happening there in Corinth. The Christians there in Corinth were not doubting at all that Christ was raised from the dead. And so they would acknowledge that Jesus was raised from the dead, but they were saying, but nobody else is going to be raised from the dead. There were some people, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say they were all saying this by any stretch, there were some who were saying that the dead are not raised. Okay? So that's the, the seeming contradiction to us. How can you say that Christ is raised from the dead and others are not? And so, in fact, if you look at verse, if, for those of you who have a Bible here, verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15 kind of sets the table. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? We don't know what they were operating with. We don't know exactly what they were saying or what they were teaching, but they obviously were accepting on the one hand the fact that Christ uh, rose from the dead. And Paul starts out 1 Corinthians 15 with this whole catalog of post-resurrection appearances that Christ made, and that they were saying, but nobody else does. Nobody else rises from the dead. So Paul is, in these verses, going to be, you'll see, is going to be connecting in, a, in an airtight way the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of all flesh on the last day. So that's what we are dealing with in 1 Corinthians 15. There was a teaching back, uh, it was maybe just starting at this time. Back in the early church, the church was fighting against this idea, and it was a teaching primarily by the Greeks that our soul is what is good in us, or our spirit is what's good in us, and our body is evil. And so the goal of life is to enlighten and free the soul or the spirit from the body. And so they would deny a resurrection of the body. These are the Greeks now. And uh, that's why when Paul is in Athens, he's on Mars Hill, and things are going along fine until he mentions the resurrection of the dead, the body. And it says there in Acts 16, some laughed at him. And others said, we will hear you again on this. 
Though that, we think, maybe was a, a part of what was seeping into their thinking. But for some reason, they are denying the resurrection of the dead. So starting at verse 21, we're in 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 21. For, by, for as by a man came death. Now who is the man by whom came death? Adam, okay, obviously, Adam. His sin brought about death. Not just, well, not just physical death, but also a spiritual death, an eternal separation from God and his love and his mercy. So, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Who is the man by whom the, comes the resurrection of the dead, obviously, is Jesus, right? So we've got what is sometimes referred to as the first Adam, second Adam here. And and Paul is contrasting here for them the first Adam by whom came sin and death and the second Adam Christ by whom comes the resurrection of the dead so notice what he's doing here he's connecting Christ with the resurrection of the dead because they're they've got an uh, they've got a contradiction going on here right notice he doesn't just say Christ's resurrection he says the resurrection of the dead 22 for as in Adam all die, again, that's the result of sin, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And obviously he's speaking about Christians here, and being made alive, or uh, given life, regenerated, we might say. Okay? Verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Now this term first fruits is kind of an important term. It's an agricultural term and it literally is the first of the harvest. It's kind of what it sounds like, the first of the harvest. And in the Old Testament there was actually a first fruits festival. <laughs> Say that fast three times. Uh, first fruits festival and when the first of the harvest came in you were to take the first of the harvest and dedicated to God, to offer it in sacrifice to God. It was out of recognition that who actually brought about that harvest, not just you, you and your hard work, but it was a blessing from God. What do we have in this country uh, that's sort of a national, uh, at least attempt at recognizing the same thing? Thanksgiving, right? It's a harvest festival, in a sense, if you go way back. and. This was the same thing that the Israelites practiced. You gave your first fruits, or the first of the harvest, to the Lord out of thanksgiving. It also recognized that there's a whole abundance out there in the field yet, ready to be brought in. So, when Paul says that Christ is the first fruits of the dead, he's the first one to be harvested, you might say, resurrected, coming back to life, and what does that recognize? There's a whole lot of others that are going to be coming after him in the same way. He is but the first one of the abundance of, of the dead who will be coming after him, right? He rose from the dead. Many, many, many more will after him, okay? Uh, so first, then at his coming, it says... That's the word parousia in Greek. You may have heard of that word. At his coming, those who belong to Christ. What does it mean to belong to Christ? Believe in him, right? He purchased us. We believe in him. We trust him. Purchased us from sin, death, and Satan. Verse 24. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. That word in verse 24, then comes the end. That word in Greek is not only kind of the, the like we're at, a, we're at a drama or a play and it's the end of the play. It actually means to have reached its goal. So then comes the time when the goal has been reached. It's the same word that Jesus uses on the cross when he says, it is finished. Okay? It doesn't just mean my life is finished, but everything I came to accomplish has reached its goal, has reached its end. 
So when Christ returns, everything here uh, in terms of God's timing will have reached its end, okay? So then comes the, you might say, the end or the goal when he, Christ, delivers, to, uh, delivers the kingdom, you might say hands it back, to the Father after destroying every rule, every authority, and every power. And I guess understood there is every rule, authority, and power that is, that is working against or is battling against God and his will on this earth. There's a sense, isn't there, that Christ has already defeated those enemies with his resurrection from the cross, uh, resurrection from the tomb, I mean, but they still are able to exercise power here on this earth. A great example of that is death, isn't it? Christ has already won the victory over death, but death, unfortunately, still exercises its, uh, its dastardly uh, actions here on this earth. Uh, and, and in fact, we've got that coming up. Verse 25, for he, the Father here, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Notice verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. You know, uh, recently I've heard of some people talking about death as a friend or as something that is positive or good uh, or is, uh, yeah, is, is almost something to be desired. Scripture doesn't speak of death as that way. It is, as it says there, uh, the last enemy to be destroyed. And uh, as I was saying before, death still takes from us, doesn't it? Our, our friends, our family members, for a while, for a time, as, as Christians, we, we know that, for a time, it's not, not permanent. But it is still the last enemy to be destroyed. And we think of Christ as having won the victory over it, and at his coming, death will be destroyed. It will be no more. Uh, our bodies that are raised will no longer uh, be perishable, as Paul says. This perishable must put on the imperishable. But for this remaining uh, segment of time now, between the resurrection and his second coming, death still uh, rears its ugly head in our midst. Uh, you know, we look at the obituaries uh, every day. They're a catalog of death's work still uh, in our midst. And we look forward to the day when that will be no longer, okay? But there is this, I, I think sometimes, even in, in non, amongst non-Christians, this idea of death as something uh, good or favorable. And we as Christians, of course, have a different understanding of death. We see death as not the end, obviously, not the final word, not the final say, but because there is a resurrection from the dead. But I just wanted to point out here, again, the Bible does not speak of death in glowing terms. It still is something that is the result of sin. It was not in God's original plan and in his original will, and it unfortunately still rears its ugly head in our midst. Some of you, I think I've used this sermon illustration before, uh, those of you who are in St. Louis, we had to, we had to mention the Cardinals in the sermon today. Uh, you remember how Jack Buck, the announcer, used to end his broadcasts? Instead of signing off or saying, we'll see you next time or whatever, remember how, what he used to say? So long for just a while, right? So long for just a while. And I've used that in sermon before. That's the way we as Christians can look at death, right? It is so long, but not permanent for just a while, okay? So, uh, anyway, just a little a way of thinking of that. Verse 30. Now, Paul's going to say, you know, if there was no resurrection here, why do you think we put ourselves in this kind of danger? Why do you think we go through all of this? If there's no resurrection from the dead, we're crazy if we're putting ourselves in danger. We're going through all of this. The fact that we are going through all this, doesn't that say to you there must be a resurrection from the dead? So, starting at verse 30. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, 
I fought with beasts at Ephesus. Well, we don't think he's actually referring to four-legged beasts here, but two-legged beasts. Uh, and he was persecuted, certainly not only in Ephesus, but in many other places that he went. Okay, so uh, if the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, and uh, eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So that's about as blunt a statement as you'll get from Paul. If Christ is not raised, we might as well just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's it, right? Unfortunately, some in this world have that outlook on life, that uh, the grave is the end. Uh, the idea behind life is to get as much enjoyment and pleasure as you possibly can, and that's it. And Paul is saying, you know, if Christ is not raised, that's about the way it is. We're still, in, as we heard today in our epistle lesson for the day, we are still in our sins. Okay? Uh, verse 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. We think they were lax in their doctrine, lax in their teaching, and that led to a moral decline in Corinth. And Paul is, is saying, wake up. You know, some haven't even heard of God yet, and that is to your shame. That there are some around you that have not even heard about God, and he's saying, wake up. So that you can see again, by denying the resurrection, what ends up happening? There is a hopelessness, and we are still in our sin. And we might as well just eat, drink, and be merry, okay? And the morals, some of the moral conditions in Corinth were not good. And he's hearkening back probably to earlier when he had talked about those. Okay, verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? So what's Paul doing here? He's anticipating the questions of those who are saying the dead aren't raised. He's going to anticipate their questions, okay? How, uh, someone will say, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Now, i got to say, I have been asked questions similar to this. Well, am I going to come back as a 30-year-old? Am I going to come back as a 20-year-old? Uh, and, and so on. Uh, am, am I gonna, what am I going to look like? Am I going to be able to recognize uh, my uh, spouse or my children and all of this? So it's just a natural thing we have, uh, this, this curiosity. Uh, and I, I have to say, we just aren't given all the, all the details about this. Paul here is trying to anticipate questions that are going to be posed to doubt the fact that, that the dead are raised. But on our part, it's just, we're just curious. You know, we would just like to know. But here, we'll see what Paul does say. Uh, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body do they come? Verse 36, you foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. So Paul is making the comparison here between our bodies that are put in the ground and what? Grain, a kernel of grain that is what? Planted in the ground. And what comes, that you know, that dry kernel of grain that doesn't look very impressive? And what comes as a result of that? Depending on what we planted, obviously. But a, a great plant that bears a whole lot of, you know, could be corn or whatever, whatever we planted. So what's the point Paul's making here? Our bodies are compared to that not very impressive kernel that gets put in the ground. And the resurrection of the dead, our bodies are going to be completely and wholly more glorious than that thing that went in the ground. Okay? So he's kind of drawing on an example that is right around us day in and day out to say that what comes from the resurrection is going to be much more glorious than what goes into the ground, okay? And so uh, going on then, verse 38, but God gives it a body as he has chosen. Notice that God will give us that body, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, 
There is one for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So again, Paul is pointing us to the things around us and saying, just look at the, the sky and the solar system. There are different kinds of glory out there amongst the solar system. So also there is a difference between the body that is sown in the ground and the body that is raised. Okay, difference in glory. And verse 42, finally, to cap it off, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is, in, what is, sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. So if something is perishable, what does that mean about it? If I go, to, if I go across the street to the grocery store here, those of you in St. Louis will know the name Schnucks, and I walk in, there I am right in the midst of the perishable section, right? So what is that? That's, that's stuff that does what over time? Spoils, degenerates, you know? Uh, if, Schnucks, if Schnucks didn't keep uh, rotating that stock, you'd come back in a week to 10 days and it wouldn't look very appealing probably, right? And uh, so what we are is perishable. We know that, anybody who's uh, uh, getting on in years knows that, right? We, we, we can feel that even, see it in our, in our own bodies. But what is raised is imperishable. No longer spoils, no longer uh, decays or degenerates. And uh, uh, so, uh, and, and Paul will also say what is sown is corruptible and it's raised incorruptible, okay? So the idea is what will be raised is much different than what goes in the ground, okay? But Paul's point here again is connecting Christ's resurrection from the dead to the resurrection of all believers on the last day. And there was, a, again, a, we would say just an illogical disconnect in Corinth. They were saying, yes, we believe Christ rose from the dead, but nobody else does. Okay. All right, let's stop there for a minute. Any questions, any comments on this before we uh, make our way to the gospel lesson? Huh? Yes, so the question was in verse 34, where he says, Some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Exactly. He is scolding them here for their lack of, you might say, lack of enthusiasm for uh, getting the gospel out. And the fact that, again, what is the, what is the cornerstone of the gospel? It's that Christ, raised, uh, Christ died and risen from the dead, so we too die and are raised from the dead. And by, by negating that last part, they're not preaching the full gospel, are they, to people? And some people do not even know about God there in their midst, which is, you know, we would say is shocking. And so you're exactly right. He is scolding them there for their lack of uh, diligence and fervor for, for mission work and for preaching the, the full gospel, including the resurrection of the dead. Okay? Anything else? All right, quickly, let's get to the gospel lesson. And uh, this comes, we started it today, actually. Uh, for those of you who were in uh, worship earlier, we started this in Luke chapter 6. This section is called the Sermon on the Plain. Not the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Plain. And it's called that because earlier on in Luke 6, it says that Jesus was on flat ground. He came to a flat place of ground. Different from Matthew 5, 6, and 7, where he's clearly on an elevated amount, so-called Sermon on the Mount. This is a sermon in the plain. Now, just to say also, there are some sections of the Sermon on the Mount that are very similar to portions of the Sermon on the Plain. That should not surprise us. If Jesus is going around teaching in different areas, it's not surprising at all that he would say some of the same things if he's teaching on some of the same subjects. 
You know, I do that myself when we teach confirmation class here, for example. If I'm talking about uh, the third commandment, I'll say some of the same things last year that I'm going to say this year, and I'll say some of the same things probably next year, Lord willing, if I'm, you know, if Christ hasn't returned before that time. So that shouldn't surprise us that if Christ is teaching on certain topics, that he says some of the same things, and even in the same way. It's just a natural thing. Now, this is a description, you might say. This section is a description of life for God's people. Let me put it that way. Life for God's people. What should that look like? How should we conduct ourselves as God's people? And as we read through this section, another thing to take note of is how Jesus completely fulfilled all of this for us. As we read through this, uh, I think you might, I certainly did, uh, feel a bit of law convicting me as I read through this, as I, as I heard that perfect description of how God's people should be and compared and contrasted it with the way I am. But the gospel is, of course, that Jesus completely fulfilled this perfectly in my place because I cannot. And we'll read through this, and I think you'll see what I mean. So let's start at verse 27. We're kind of picking up here midway. But I say to you who hear, so again, this is the people of God, the followers who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. All right, you see what I mean so far? <laughs> Anybody not? have that kind of hit them a little bit uh, and again remember who is it that perfectly fulfilled this Jesus just think of the pray for those who abuse you as he's hanging there on the cross what are the first words out of his mouth at least that we have recorded father forgive them for they know not what they do so Jesus completely fulfills this in my place. But see, he's showing us here that his followers are to be different than the, the, the way the world operates. That life in the kingdom of God is to be different. That if you are, and again, this is as a result of following him. So if there are those who hate you because you're following me, do good to them. Don't, don't return evil to them. And if, those, if there are those who curse you because you're following me, bless them. And if, those who, if there are those who abuse you because you're following me, pray for them. Now that is much easier said than done, isn't it? By our own human nature, what's our, what's our fervent desire when somebody is our enemy and is abusing us and is speaking evil about us? get back at them right if not if not as much even more right and Jesus here is calling us to something much higher as one of his followers and again think how he perfectly fulfilled this verse 29 to one who strikes you on the cheek offer the other also and for the one who takes away your cloak do not withhold your tunic either and again this is the result of being one of his followers. If you're receiving that, give him everything. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. That's pretty hard, isn't it? That's pretty hard. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. What's, uh, what's that kind of another, we call that the what rule? golden rules is kind of restated a little different way right uh, as you wish that others would do or would treat you uh, so treat them or do to them right verse 32 now this is kind of an interesting section if you love those who love you what benefit is that to you for even sinners love those who love them and if you do good to those who do good to you what benefit is that to you for even sinners do the same. I, I, it was last year I read something that really kind of struck me, 
And you stop and think about this in your own life. I certainly made me stop and think about it in my life. And the author was making the point, how many of our friends that we have in this life are people who actually have something to offer to us? Do, do we have any friends who have absolutely nothing that they can return to us? Most of your friends, if you think about it, can do something for you, can't they? And yet Jesus says, if you only love those who love you, what gain is it? Even sinners do that. In other words, they have a selfish motivation for who they hang around with and who their friends are, right? And that kind of, again, that kind of convicts us when you stop and think about it. Uh, verse 34, and if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, namely a gain, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get the same amount, get back the same amount. Here's the contrast. Notice how this is repeated again. But love your enemies. Now, it was up before that uh, Jesus said the same thing, right up, right at verse 27 at the start. So again, how important, it all flows from this love. How does this love demonstrate itself? In all the ways that Jesus is describing. 35 again, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expect nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind, the Son of the Most High now, is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Is uh, God kind to the ungrateful and the evil? Yes, absolutely. He is gracious even to the kind. We can think of ourselves, first of all, as the ungrateful, right? But then there's also the evil in the world. Does God bring about blessings upon the evil and the just as well? Absolutely. They just don't realize it, right? Going on, verse 36, be merciful even as your father is merciful. And verse 37, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. There's a lesson for us in this. I mean, I think we as humans have this tendency to want to judge someone else, especially with regard to their eternal salvation. I always say God has not called us to judge that. That is in God's hands. What God has asked us to do is share the gospel with all people, right? That's what he has asked us to do. The judgment is in his hands. Um, then going on, uh, forgive and you will be forgiven, again, as a child of God. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And again, this is assuming the Christian outlook or Christian faith. That don't worry about what you're going to have. That's to go back to the Sermon on the Mount. You know, God knows that you need these things and he will provide them for you. Okay? All right, looks like we're out of time, unfortunately. But uh, this is, these then will be the lessons for next Sunday uh, that we look forward to hearing and uh, hearing a sermon on as well. All right, let's close then with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen.